Seltzer Kings Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, stop whining, Gavin. We'll be here five minutes. Maybe an hour if I blow a lot of takes. Yes. The following podcast contains... You can't say goddamn on the air. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When your rerun has updated information that you didn't have when you did the original show and you just decided to record a whole intro again, what the hell were you thinking? It's supposed to be your day off. I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 279, Warning Challenger Jokes Ahead, Expanded Edition, where we tell you some shocking news that I learned just this week. Stay tuned. The Will Your Thinking Podcast is brought to you by the Russian Space Agency. Want to go to space cheap? You fly Russian Space Agency. Why fly on over-engineered, expensive Western space rocket when you go at economy on same rockets we've been using 60 years? It just big boom on stick, not hard. Yeah, sure, we kill a bunch of people going up there, we just don't talk about it. That one woman cosmic up screaming and over for days until she burn up. We just don't talk about it. That's why the Russian space agency still cheapest way to get to space. Call now, we have special offer. You fly to space station on cheap Russian rocket. Spend month in space. Maybe come home. Offer one low fee. You try and get same from NASA or Elon Musk. Never happen. You want to go to space on the cheap and not worried about coming back so much? You fly Russian space agency. Okay, so here's the thing. This is a rerun. And yet here you are. But I got information that I felt important enough to break in here right at the beginning to tell you. You're drunk. Again. No, not yet. Soon, but not yet. So originally, when I did this show in September of 2020, this is when the show was switching from its what the fuck did Trump do this week format to the world is fucked and it's all Ronald Reagan's fault format. Ah, 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 he said it. In those early days, I was still learning how to do proper research on a historical topic. That's right here on Wikipedia. Which I have learned is a great place to start. But, you know, if you think you want to. Would you like to know more? You need to branch out. Which probably explains how I missed a piece of critical information that I only learned this week from another source. And I heard it on a podcast. Yeah, the last podcast on the left's side stories. And it fucking shocked me. Take a listen. There was a plan to put the person in the big, in the big bird costume on the Challenger and send it up in the Big Bird costume. What? But to get kids interested in space travel. Like, Big Bird's going to space. Have Big Bird go to their... And I was all like, what the fuck? And so I went looking for the source, and yeah. Here's a 2000 or 2003 article in the Chicago Sun-Times. Quote, Like many Americans, Carol Spinney remembers watching the tragic Challenger shuttle mission in 1986. Had it not been for Big Bird, it could have been him on the mission instead of school teacher Krista McAuliffe. I was the first civilian asked to go up in the space shuttle, says Spinney, Spinney, who has spent the past 34 years in a bird costume or a trash can playing Big Bird and Austin the Grouch, respectively, on Sesame Street. I really wanted to orbit the Earth, but the bird was too big to fit in there. 
Krista McAuliffe went up instead, unquote. I mean, people were fucked up when Krista McAuliffe died on that mission. But can you imagine, just for a second, the reaction in this country and around the world if NASA fucking murdered Big Bird? I really wanted to watch it. Yeah, that times millions. I mean, the kids who did see the damn thing go boom were at least old enough to process some of what they saw. But a big bird were on that fucking flight. Toddlers across the country watching Big Bird walk onto the shuttle. And then an hour later, this happened. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. How the fuck do you explain that to a four-year-old? Oh, you see, little Timmy? President Reagan needed to win re-election, so he pressured NASA into rushing the launch, even though NASA knew there was a significant risk of the shuttle would blow up and kill everyone on board. But hey, you know, you can't defeat communism without breaking some big-ass eggs, am I right? I mean, I was 17, and if I'd watched Big Bird, whom I'd grown up with, turn into a giant ball of burning feathers slowly drifting down into the Atlantic... I'd be fucked up too. And the jokes, oh my God, they were dark enough already. But if you kill a Muppet in a publicity stunt, shit is going to get real bleak real fucking fast. So yeah, talk about dodging a bullet there, NASA. Instead, you know, you just killed a school teacher and a six astronauts instead. So uh, here's our show about the Challenger disaster that happened 38 years ago. There's also some stuff about Ed Gein that if I were doing the show today... I wouldn't have put in there, but hey, live, laugh, learn, love, and also put that fucking Elmo thing on Elon's exploding rocket the next time it goes up, because Elmo just fucking annoys me. If you ask a lot of Gen Xers the moment they cannot forget from their childhood, it's a safe bet they're going to mention the Challenger explosion. Oh my God, this is not happening. Oh, it is. It's exactly what's happening. So, for most people over 40-ish, they would probably tell you they remember watching it in class or having some kind of school assembly to witness the first teacher in space. But of course, many if not most of them are, uh... Fucking liars, motherfucking liars. Because people like to think they remember things about big events that never actually happened. And unless they were going to the school where Krista McAuliffe taught or their teacher had a good hangover that day and rolled out the AV cart, they probably didn't see it live. They saw it on the news later that day. I couldn't tell you exactly what I was doing on the morning of January 28th, 1996, and my life depended on it. I'm positive I wasn't watching the shuttle launch as Mountain Home, Idaho public schools didn't believe in teaching satanic sciences or have the budget for AV equipment newer than a film projector someone won in a raffle in 1953. Those were the days. <laughs> And I had much bigger things to worry about since I transferred into the school midway through my high school career and was still trying to make a few friends and not be considered a weirdo. How'd that work out for you? Not bad once I started selling a little weed on the side. Uh, based on the time of day, I, I guess I would have been in my first class of the day, which was too early to skip and go get high across the street, but... I don't remember announcements or other indications that some shit went down in Florida that morning. That's probably because the Pony Express rider had to carry the news in from Boise and didn't get there till late that afternoon. And then I probably watched some of the coverage that night on the news, but even that's hard to say since I wasn't much for uh, being, you know, informed at 17. So honestly, who the fuck knows? I don't think the whole thing really broke through into my consciousness until 
Well, the joke started. Don't worry, I'll get there. For you youngs out there, you've certainly heard of the Challenger disaster, but it probably doesn't mean much to you. This is totally understandable, and even Gen X is the first to admit that the Challenger thing kind of got bumped from, uh... Oh, yeah, okay, that's just about the most awful thing I've ever seen. Way down to... I guess. It's kind of a bummer. After all the brouhaha of September 11th. Hell, the only reason I'm talking about it is the next Netflix docuseries called Challenger Final Flight that I watched this week, which actually was far more horrifying than anything I might remember of the actual day itself. I mean, if you want to be really angry about something, I suggest watching the documentary. If you just want to be a little angry or, or in for some jokes, go ahead and continue listening to the show, because that's what we're going to do from here on out. The thumbnail of spaceflight in the 1980s by the time of the Challenger can best be summarized thusly. Boring. NASA and the U.S. government had spent billions of dollars to build this remarkable machine at the cutting edge of human technology. And when it came down to it, it was basically a flying Ford F-150. Of all the pickups in the market today, one carries them all. It's the leader, Ford. In fact, the F-150 had a much more exciting marketing campaign, so people weren't paying much attention to the shuttle program, and that, pod friends, was a problem. Because NASA was a line item on a budget bill, and without some sizzle in the media, that line item was shrinking every year. Shit, I learned for the first time watching that Netflix doc that we sent politicians into space. And I'm sure someone must have made these jokes at the time about leaving them up there. After all, you know what we call a senator and a congressman lost in space forever. A good start! <laughs> so NASA got their marketing department together and put them to work. Of course NASA had a marketing department. They still do. NASA's a brand as much as it is anything, certainly as much as it's scientific or research and exploration. And those tchotchkes just don't sell themselves. We are NASA. And after 60 years, we're just getting started. And like any good marketing department, they began spitballing ideas around the table on how to boost enthusiasm for NASA's boring-ass flying pickup truck. And that's when someone shouted out, Hey, let's put some regular schmuck in space. This presumably went around the room a few times until eventually the marketing director was like, Yeah. Regular people, sure, yeah. And the search was on for the right regular-ass person to give minimal training before shooting them into orbit on a still highly experimental launch platform. As the idea wound its way up the government flagpole, it eventually landed on the desk of, of someone in the Reagan White House in 1984, where some young go-getter realized this crazy idea could be a great prop for the Gipper in his re-election campaign of that year. You see, Ron had fucking gutted funding for education in America because the GOP knew that an educated population would spot their bullshit from a mile, mile off and never vote for them. And boy, has that idea worked out for them. And teachers hated fucking Ron's guts for it. So the administration decided to throw the teachers a PR bone by shooting one of their numbers into orbit. Thus, the Teacher in Space Project was born. A national search was conducted for just the right teacher to shoot into space. There were 11,000 applicants, which says a lot about how horrible it must be to be a teacher. And they winnowed them down to 10 finalists who underwent a battery of tests at Houston to see if their insides would stay inside if they were chosen to be the one. A New Hampshire high school teacher by the name of Krista McAuliffe was chosen to be the primary, and Barbara Morgan, who was teaching math and science to third graders in Ecuador, was chosen to be her alternate. McAuliffe would fly up, teach a couple of lessons from orbit, and then return to fanfare and adulation, and the budget would be saved. To be clear, 
Sending McAuliffe into space was an extremely expensive and ultimately tragic publicity stunt with no more scientific relevance than David Blaine strapping a bunch of fucking balloons to his body and floating over the Grand Canyon. The only difference between the two is that no one was going to miss David Blaine if he fucked it up. That was just mean. Oh, fuck David Blaine. The actual astronauts in the space program hated this idea. Not just for the reasons you might think, because if a regular jackass could just go up in space after a few weeks of training, then how special can an astronaut be? But also because going into space is actually really fucking dangerous. It always has been and always will be. But their inputs on the matter were not solicited by management, and even if they had been, they would have been ignored, as we soon shall see. So, after a quick training cycle, McAuliffe was slated to fly on the shuttle mission STS-51L on board the Challenger OV-099, the second shuttle built for NASA, which had already been into orbit and back nine times without incident. The mission crew consisted of six others, Commander Dick Scobie, Pilot Michael J. Smith, Mission Specialist Allison S. Onizuka, Judith A. Resnick and Ronald E. McNair and payload specialist Gregory Jarvis. Along with the teaching, there were several mission objectives, including deployments of satellites, carrying out a first flight of the shuttle-pointed autonomous research tool for astronomy to study Halley's Comet. There were some experiments slated to take place, but the attention was, of course, on McAuliffe. Unfortunately, things did not go as planned. Engines at 65%, three engines uh, running normally, three good fuel cells, three good APUs. Velocity 2,257 feet per second. Altitude 4.3 nautical miles, downrange distance 3 nautical miles. Engines throttling up, three engines now at 104%. Challenger, go and throttle up. Challenger, go and throttle up. Velocity 2,900 feet per second, altitude 9 nautical miles, downrange distance 7 nautical miles. Gee, Bob, what gave that away? Was it the explosion or the fucking shower of debris that was currently raining into the Atlantic Ocean? It really did freak the fuck out of America when it happened. Most people had long since forgotten the deaths on Apollo 1 on the launch pad, and those that did remember were long lulled into complacency by the tremendous success and good luck that had been the hallmark of the U.S. space program. I mean, we were still 10 years from Apollo 13, the movie, not the actual events, and we were 16 years from the actual events. Oh, you're coming out of problem. American spacecraft didn't just explode mid-flight. Maybe some shit broke out there in space, but we always fixed it and brought our people home. To watch on television over and over and over again, a shuttle and seven human beings disintegrate in midair for no apparent reason shook America's egotistical confidence to the bone. This was the 80s. Reagan was president. The Soviet Union was on the ropes. You could get cocaine in every nightclub bathroom. And Dion Warwick and friends were telling us on the radio that that's what friends are for. Oh, 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 oh,
shit did not happen to Americans back then. And everyone wanted to know one thing. What, what the fuck just happened? Well, everyone except a bunch of engineers in Utah and a bunch of managers at NASA who all knew exactly what the fuck had just happened. Because just that morning, they had been told... Could explode catastrophically. And they shouldn't launch the mission because the weather was well below freezing and the O-rings on the solid rocket boosters, which had already been identified as being leakier than Ronnie's adult diapers, could very possibly shoot flames into the massive tank of liquid oxygen and hydrogen that fuel the main engines and result in, according to Morton Thiokol, engineer R.M. Bosley, quote, It is my honest and very real fear that if we do not take immediate action, to dedicate a team to solve the problem with the field joint having the number one priority, then we stand in jeopardy of losing a flight along with the launch pad facilities, unquote. So many factors contributed to the disaster that could have been averted or just missed by happenstance that there are too many to list. The Roberts Commission, impaneled by Reagan with a mandate to, quote, not make NASA look bad, unquote, was dragged kicking and screaming into the investigation. But the gist of the findings came down to one overarching failure that is so very, very, very American. Upper management. Both NASA and booster manufacturer Morton Thiokol were aware for years of potential problems with the O-ring sealing the segments of the solid rocket boosters. Evidence of burn-through had been found on previous missions and a team was working to fix the problem, but it was a couple of years away. NASA was under incredible political pressure to launch missions on time and on budget, and the entire shuttle program had been a fucking boondoggle of fucking budget overruns since the very beginning. The Challenger launch had been delayed twice already, once due to equipment failure and second due to weather, and the push was on to launch that morning including a push from the very top from a new york times article april 4th 1986 quote the white house said today that several president of president reagan's aides were in telephone contact with the space agency before the launching of the shuttle challenger but there was no evidence of communications entailed pressure on the launching schedule larry speaks the white house spokesman acknowledged the telephone conversations but he said the administration was declining to release telephone records and logs that had been requested in a connection with the senate inquiry into rumors that the white house put pressure on the national area aeronautics and space administration to launch the shuttle in time for mr reagan to mention it in flight in his State of the Union message, which was scheduled for January 28th, unquote. Well, imagine that. They found no evidence. It's hard to imagine they would find evidence of misdeeds in the Reagan White House. I mean, there were certainly no other cover-ups or criminal misdeeds going on at the time. <coughs> Either way... After a series of frantic efforts by the Thiokol engineers to get the mission to abort until warmer weather, which was overruled under pressure from NASA managers, the company eventually gave the go-ahead from their end. NASA managers promptly signed off on the launch. It was George Hardy and Larry Malloy, managers of the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, who gave the final go-ahead from a hardware standpoint to go with the launch that day, after overruling and pressuring the side objections from the manufacturer. A few hours later, seven people were dead directly as a result of Hardy and Malloy's decision. Nobel laureate Richard Feynman, who was appointed to the Rogers Commission on the incident and would prove to be a huge pain in the ass to said commission because he didn't give a fuck about politics, only the facts, said of the commission report, quote, for a successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled, unquote. 
And this was a hard truth because the commission and all subsequent investigations all found that the disaster was predictable and predicted and that NASA management could and should have aborted the launch with the information they had on hand. To this day, in the documentary that inspired this episode, both managers said again, I did what I thought was right in in the light of the information I had. And if I were going over it with the same information I had at the time, I'd make the same decision. Because I thought it was right. I didn't do anything that I thought was wrong then. And I didn't do anything that I think was wrong in retrospect. The man who's most heavily criticized in the report, Lawrence Malloy, has been moved into another job and has indicated that he may leave NASA. I feel I was to blame, but I felt no guilt. Really? No guilt? Seven people are dead, but you don't feel guilty about that. That first guy, William Lucas, was in charge of the Marshall Space Flight Center at the time. He was the head honcho of head honchos, and he'd said earlier in the documentary... You know, some deaths are just the cost of scientific progress. He literally said that. Watch the documentary. Well, gee, Bill, thanks for that compassion. And it should also be fucking noted that this wasn't scientific progress. It was fucking a photo op. And no one should die for good publicity. And by the way, that same managerial stupidity would kill again 17 years later, almost to the day, on the space shuttle Columbia. So there you go, the short, short version of what actually happened. But this episode ain't about that. You know, we are, we're wasting valuable time here. Please, you can't rush an artist. About to get to what you all really came for. I think the Challenger disaster's greatest impact on my generation, the Gen Xers as it were, was in driving home the hard reality that the world is just fucking terrible and don't get attached to pretty much anything because the chances are it will blow up 70 seconds later. A whole generation of kids who already came of age during the 70s, 80s, watching the dreams of their parents die under the weight of working two or three jobs to keep a roof over our heads, who watched our political system slowly slip into dysfunction and our president into dementia, who grew up overexposed and commercialized to within an inch of our life every single second of our day, from our breakfast cereal monsters to our He-Man pajamas, our only value to the greater society was whatever we could be sold via cartoons and eventually MTV, who would just watch society slowly begin to deflate like a balloon over the Grand Candy with an asshole tethered to it. The Challenger was the final straw that broke the metaphorical Bactrian spinal column because we responded in a uniquely Generation X, fa- X fashion. We told dark and disturbing jokes about the event. The following article was published in the Chicago Tribune in March, three months later, 1986. Quote, perhaps predictably, our latest shared tragedy, the end of the Space Shuttle Challenger, has led to an explosion of cruel jokes. What were the last words of the shuttle commander? I meant a Bud Light. Where did the shuttle crew spend its vacation? All over Florida. What does NASA stand for? Need another seven astronauts. Many of us wince at these jokes, but the prevalence and vitality of such cruel humor must reveal something about how we deal with pain, that our own and that of others. Life, wrote Horace Walpole, is a tragedy to those who feel, but a comedy to those who think. But as John Irving points out, the situation is more complex. There's something grimly comic about a tragedy. A friend of mine who's a professional comic would probably agree. He reports that within a week of the disaster, comedy club audiences were chanting, tell shuttle jokes, tell shuttle jokes, when a new comic walked on stage, unquote. 
Almost instantly, challenger jokes exploded. Oh, Dame, you. Into the zeitgeist. I remember them being told within a week of the shuttle explosion in the halls of Mountain Home, Idaho, the darker and more disgusting the better. It being the 80s, a lot of the jokes were more than a little racist, sexist, and homophobic, so I'm going to skip past those and concentrate on the more generic, if equally horrific, jokes that you all came to hear him say, even though you lie, 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 and say you don't want to hear those horrible jokes ever again. In fact, if you're over 45 right now, you have at least three of these jokes on the tip of your tongue because they were everywhere and everyone was telling them. Well... Maybe not the kids in Krista McAuliffe's class, but I wouldn't want to bet on that because kids are fucking assholes. Jokes like, hey, did you know Krista McAuliffe had blue eyes? Because one blue left and one blue right. <laughs> oh, 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 what about, hey, uh, hey, hey, what were Krista McAuliffe's last words? <laughs> what does this button do? <laughs> and um, did you know, did you know that NASA has this new space drink? It's called Ocean Spray. Their second choice because they couldn't get seven up. <laughs> oh, the next two double dips into other 80s news. Hey, <laughs> what does a sea lion with a space shuttle and Tylenol have in common? <laughs> They're all looking for a tight seal. <laughs> oh, and, and what do Chris McAuliffe and Donna Rice have in common? <laughs> they both went down on a challenger. <laughs> Are you done? Uh, okay, okay. One last one. I promise. Did you hear that they're sending up another teacher on the next shuttle mission? <laughs> She's going to be a substitute. <laughs> In a world before the internet, when memes hadn't even begun to cross the mind of Richard Dawkins, when the cultural spread of things would depend largely on word of mouth, how the fuck did these horrible jokes spread to every corner of the country so fast? Even the backwater town of Mountain Home, Idaho. Well, I actually found a scholarly article on the topic, the actual topic, not just vague booking around it, the actual topic of Challenger Jokes. In Challenger Jokes and the Humor of Disaster by Willie Smith, Western Folklore, Volume 45, Number 4, October 1986. Quote, there's an ongoing national curiosity about who makes up these topical jokes. A single origin or authorship of these jokes is probably impossible to, to discern. What's generally agreed upon is that the jokes are spread extremely rapidly in the oral folk tradition. It's unlikely that these jokes are spread primarily by media figures, stage comedians, or journalists because the taboo natures of these jokes makes them censored as material for media broadcast. Not anymore, pal. And tends to regulate them, particularly just after the tragedy occurs and people's sensitivities are highest, to rather privileged tellings. In fact, a Los Angeles radio broadcaster was reputed to have been fired before repeating two challenger jokes over the air. The speed in which these jokes saturate a country is testimony to the power of spoken folklore, albeit greatly amplified by long-distance phone and radio communication. Within four days of the accident, one of my sources for challenger jokes I heard five of these jokes from people calling from all over the company via Watts Line. Watts Line was like a long-distance business line that cost less than residential long-distance that people used to fucking basically rip off their companies. Another joke informant reports hearing jokes in sales calls over the phones with clients, unquote. 
Smith goes on later in the article to posit that the reason these jokes exist in the first place is these events are so oversaturated in the media that people lose the emotional connection to the grief and horror and the constant repetition of the footage. Quote, in the face of such deliberate and persistent intrusion by the media, the emotional response it demanded from its viewing public, it was probably inevitable that some rebellion would surface. The form that rebellion took was humor. Ironically, it was in a form so outrageous that the media itself could not report on its outbreak in any detail. And finally, it concluded, the Challenger jokes reveal how people distance themselves from disaster, from, from intimations of their own mortality, and the moral posturing of an intrusive media. These jokes and the shuttle jokes attack our taboos on talking to describing death or disaster and attack as well the power of the media to shape emotional response and their ultimate inability to, to give people more than just show images of genuine human experiences, unquote. I have linked this scholarly article in the show notes. You can get it for free on JSTOR. And God, should you read this article because this guy, Willie Smith, quotes every disgusting and tasteless joke verbatim that I ever heard growing up in the 80s. It's fucking amazing. I want to meet this guy. Now, all of that being true, there was something about the prevalence and level of brutalism and challenger jokes that just seemed unique to Gen X to me. And not necessarily in a good way. I mean, I'm sure there were jokes about JFK and the assassin in the days following his assassination, but go look for them in primary sources. You won't find them. And I know people delighted in what were called geeners, jokes about Ed Gein and his predilection for murder and digging up corpses to turn them into a skin suit that he would wear to make him look like a woman that was in the 1950s. You want one of those, don't you? I can tell you want a geener. Okay, here's a geener. There once was a farmer named Ed who liked to convert with the dead. He'd dig up the grave all the better to save a carcass he'd hang in the shed. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. One more Ed Geener. All right, one more Geener. Ed Geen, Ed Geen. He wasn't mean. He'd dig up a body that was putrid and green. <laughs> but for just dark fucking jokes, it was the 80s that really went all in on them. Because we don't do those kind of jokes today. I mean, yeah, they're out there, but not like they were in the late 80s and 90s. We have an entire technology that's devoted to spreading jokes at the speed of fucking light. But by the mid-90s, the sick joke method of coping with tragedy seemed to have died out. I mean, I don't recall any jokes about Oklahoma City bombings. And I was in the military. I would have heard them. And name one joke about September 11th you can remember going around. You can't do it. The closest thing I heard to a joke about September 11th was a second hand a year or two later. A friend of mine named Andrew, when my friend looked at my friend Kimberly as they were watching the footage of the attacks and said, it's finally happened. The planes have turned against us. Which came across more as a sad attempt to deflect with horror of what was going on than witnessing a full-on punchline. It's possible the 9-11 attacks killed the sick disaster joke forever. And considering how bad Twitter and Facebook are now, that's not a bad thing. But it's also quite possible that so many horrible things have happened since 1986 that we as a culture just aren't able to make sick jokes about them now. Professor Alan Dundas said in an LA Times article in, 196, in 1986 about the rash of twisted jokes of the time, quote, they are unique only in one sense, that TV and perhaps newspapers make everyone a witness, Dundas said. In the old days, by the time the news had spread, it was already old news. Now, you are essentially an unwilling eyewitness. 
How many times did you see that damn shuttle explode? Some people actually saw it happen. They show the damn thing again and again. A press conference, and they show it blowing up. Recovering the bodies, and they show it again. You're an eyewitness, whether you like it or not, unquote. And after so many years, so many horrors witnessed over and over again on cable news and then on the internet, in a time when everyone is a fucking comedian on Twitter and memes are currency and social interaction, maybe we've finally seen so much awful shit that we can't process it at all. Maybe we've just become numb to the constant throb of horror that pours on us 24-7 in an eternal doom scroll that is modernity. We might just be losing our last best coping mechanism to let our brains ease the pressure of constant fucking tragedy. Add to that the social pressure to avoid giving offense to anyone or be ostracized, and the jokes are now more forbidden than in the days when you couldn't tell the most obvious jokes about the president getting his head blown off like, hey, why was JFK America's favorite president? It's because he was so open-minded. <laughs> I think my generation is so fucking cynical and tired because we were the last generation to be able to be shocked by anything. And we've been shocked so many times over the course of our lives that we've just kind of given into and given up and retreated back into the shells of our latchkey kid youth. Right now, every Gen Xer is listening to this podcast, nodding along and chuckling themselves about a challenger joke I haven't told while every other generation is asking themselves, what the fuck is wrong with these people? To which I say, I say, hey, it's not our fault we grew up and our innocence crashed into the fucking ocean like the crew cabin of a space shuttle. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. That is it for our show this week. Yeah, sorry about this bummer of a show topic this week. But you should really blame Netflix for putting on shows that I watched during this year of hell. Because I knew the second I started watching that I would do a Challenger episode for no other reason that I could say things like, Hey, how many astronauts can you put in a VW bug? Eleven. Two in the front, two in the back, and seven in the ashtray. <coughs> I'm sorry. That was awful and tasteless. Speaking of tasteless, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods so that others can listen to the kind of show where the host thinks and says things like, what else does NASA stand for? Needed another shuttle anyway. <laughs> and feel just as bad as you do right now. Follow the show on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast with a show name on Facebook where you can hate tweet your reactions to my telling jokes like, why was NASA depressed after the Challenger blew up? You'd be depressed too if you couldn't get it up for two years. We would need to stoop to tell you these ancient jokes if you guys would just kick us a couple of bucks on patreon.com slash what the hell podcast where we reserve our good and tasteful material for people who pay for it. All of our totally tasteless episodes can be found at whatthehellpodcast.com. And so for me, Dave, we found our head and shoulders on the beach bled. So producer, you feed the dog and I'll feed the fish Gavin and all the fictional I meant Bud Lights. 
Charlie, give me a light. Charlie, a Bud Light. Astronauts on the show. We want to say we had a lot of luck on Venus. We always had a ball on Mars meeting all the groupy people. And we've rocked the Milky Way so far because we had managers who cared more about safety than publicity, damn it. We'll see you all next week and stay tuned right after George Carlin for one more dinner. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Oh, you're still here. You clearly really are committed to me doing another Giener, aren't you? All right, let me give you my favorite Giener. A visit from old Ed. Towards the night before Christmas and all through the shed, all the creatures were stirring, even old Ed. The bodies were hung by the rafters above while Eddie was searching for another new love. He went to Watoma for a plain field deal, looking for love and also a meal. When Watu was hungry, I should appear, but old Mary Hogan in her new red brassiere. Her cheeks were like roses when kissed by the sun, and she let out a scream at the sight of Ed's gun. Old Ed pulled the trigger, and Mary fell dead. He took out his axe and cut off her head. Then he took his hacksaw and cut her in two, one half for hamburger, the other for stew. And laying a hand the side of her heel, up to the rafters went his next meal. He sprang to his truck and to the graveyard flew. The hours were short and much work he must do. He looked for the grave where the fattest one laid and started digging with his shovel and spade. He shoveled and shoveled and shoveled some more till finally he reached the old coffin door. He took out a crowbar and pried open the box. He was not only clever but sly as a fox. And he picked up the body and he cut off her head. He could tell by the smell that the old girl was dead. And he filled the grave by the moonlight above. And once more, old Ed had found a new love. Okay, that's it. We're done. Turn off your phone. Go hug your mom. Just like old Ed. <laughs> Seltzer Kings Podcasts.